Well, let's stand and open our Bibles to Romans 16. And we'll begin reading with verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience is reached to all, therefore I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sisypater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Quartus, the brother, Now to Him who is able to establish you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but now is manifested and by the Scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. Well, we looked last time at verses 17 to 20, where Paul, having just exhorted the Romans to greet one another with a holy kiss, immediately warns them to watch out for those who cause divisions, and stumbling blocks contrary to the teaching which they have received. And we took note of three things um, that we learn from these verses. First of all, um, just by way of review, we saw that unity is extremely important to God, and division of all kinds is extremely harmful. Uh, This is one of the major themes of Paul's writings, and of the New Testament as a whole, and we shouldn't be surprised at that because the Lord Jesus Himself said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And we know that Satan would then try to destroy the church by dividing us against ourselves. Secondly, uh, we considered some of the characteristics of those we are to watch out for, and we looked at three of these. Uh, First of all, um, we saw that divisions and stumbling blocks that are set up by these people uh, always contradict the teaching that the church has already received. Uh, Sometimes this involves outright heresy, as in this case here apparently that Paul was warning about. And sometimes it has to do with lesser matters, but it always contradicts Uh, what the church has already been taught. And Paul tells us to turn away from those who would do that, not to listen to them, not to entertain their arguments. 
Secondly, uh, these people seek out those who are most easily swayed, and their speech is most often characterized by what he calls smooth talk and fine words. And we saw that literally, uh, the New American Standard translates it flattering speech. I think the ESV says fine words. But literally, it's the word blessing, translated blessing. And so uh, when uh, James says, out of the same mouth come blessing and cursing, that's the word that's used here. And so what Paul is saying is that harmful, divisive, and even heretical speech is most often not harsh and strident. It's most often smooth and blessing. Everything's a blessing. So uh, we need to be wise and discerning and listen to the actual content of what's being said, not just the manner. And then finally, they are not really, Paul says, they're not really serving Christ, but their own appetites or egos. And we saw that sometimes this is manifested by excess. Uh, Their God is their belly in that sense. But also it may be the exact opposite, a life of denial. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Um, Still the same type of thing. So, So the first thing, unity is extremely important to God. Division of all kinds is extremely harmful. Then some characteristics of those to watch out for that Paul gives. And then thirdly, behind all this is the working of Satan, verse 20. Uh, Paul attributes this to Satan's working in their midst. And uh, he says the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And this is important to remember. He doesn't say the God of peace will soon crush one another under your feet, but he'll soon crush Satan under your feet. We're not enemies of one another. And that's a very encouraging thing when you think about it, that... uh, that Satan's trying to divide us, but we're not enemies of each other. And um, if we can just remember that, he's trying to, he's seeking to divide and to stumble us, to put up stumbling blocks, um, many times through false teaching. Uh, what, however, whatever he can do to stumble the saints. Well, that brings us then to the end of chapter 16 with two sets of three verses. Uh, First of all, verses 21 to 23, which are final greetings from Paul's companions. And then uh, verse 25 to 27, which are final doxologies. So let's look at these first three. First of all, verses 21 to 23. He says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greet you. And Cordus, the brother. Uh, there's several things that we could say about all this. Um, uh, Luce, or Jason, for example, I don't think Lucius we necessarily run into at other places, but Jason and Sisypiter. Uh, we read about in other places. Um, also, we find out here that um, the writer of the letter of Romans was Tertius. And you might it might be better for us if he said, "I, I Tertius, who wrote down this letter." He didn't really write the letter, but he wrote it down. 
And um, that itself was quite a job. And he was a Christian. We would expect that. He said he greeted them in the, in the Lord. <clears throat> and so uh, you can picture the, set, the scenario here. Paul is dictating and he's writing things down. And Paul says, well, why don't you give him a greeting? And he, he writes it out. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, this epistle, greet you in the Lord. <clears throat> and then uh, Gaius, or Gaius, my host, Paul says, a host to me. And uh, <clears throat> we remember that normally when he was in Corinth, Paul stayed with Aquila and Priscilla, but they aren't there anymore. They're in Rome, and he sent greetings to them in Rome. And so here he is, now he's staying with Gaius, and um, um, he's someone who's taken Priscilla and Aquila's place and hosting the Apostle Paul, and probably Timothy at least was staying there with him too. And he says that he's host to me and to the whole church. And it's unlikely that uh, anyone had a house big enough for the entire church to meet. So probably what he means is is that um, Gaius was very hospitable and anybody that needed anything or needed to stay with him, particularly those passing through, uh, were able to stay there at his home. And so another example of hospitality and then he says, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Now, this is amazing. There was a believer here who is a city treasurer for Corinth, which was a big place. Um, hundreds of thousands of people, even, after, even though it had been destroyed 150 years or so before, uh, it, had, it had been reestablished. And Erastus had become a Christian. Uh, it's interesting, uh, there has been a pavement discovered <clears throat> uh, from the first century in Corinth. The pavement said this, Erastus, commissioner for public works, laid this pavement at his own expense. And the two titles are not identical here, it's in the one here is the city treasurer, and that one's commissioner of public works. Uh, but a lot of people, nevertheless, think that uh, they're referring to the same man. Um, maybe he was promoted to permit commissioner of public works, or maybe he was demoted from that after he became a Christian. I don't know, but uh, anyway, it's an interesting thing. But we do know this. We know that he was the city treasurer for Corinth. Pretty amazing. Um, and then he just mentions Quartus. He says, the brother, literally. Quartus, the brother. But the most notable person in this list, of course, is the one I skipped over, and that's Timothy. Verse 21, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Um, I thought about doing a whole message on Timothy, but there's so much material to try to corral and put together in a way that would be somewhat edifying. Uh, I just finally gave up. Just to follow Timothy's movement to the various churches. We looked at Priscilla and Aquila, and you about get worn out trying to follow them around, but Timothy puts them to shame. He was, he was all over the place. 
uh, with Paul and sometimes uh, doing things that Paul had sent him to do. And uh, uh, he's actually, it would, it would probably take a whole message just to follow his movements. He's mentioned 24 times in the New Testament in 24 different verses, much more than most of the apostles. In fact, several of the apostles put together would not equal the number of times that Timothy is mentioned. And the context surrounding his name uh, often tell us quite a bit more about it. Also, he had two books of the New Testament written directly to him. And so, and when there's a lot that we can learn in those books about Timothy himself. But um, Paul calls Timothy his, quote, fellow worker and his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. So it seems like Timothy was converted through the Apostle Paul's ministry. Uh, he calls him a bondservant of Christ Jesus and says to the Philippians, I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. So he was, you know, unique. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Six of Paul's letters begin with Timothy's name alongside his. And we tend to just read over this, but suppose, think of what this would be like, Jeff. Paul and Jeff to the church at so-and-so. Think of what Paul the Apostle and Mason to the church at so-and-so. I mean, think of what you'd feel like. I mean, it's just... um, but it's amazing that we read this and just don't think anything about it. But li- listen to this. <clears throat> Paul, <clears throat> an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church which is at Corinth. All right? Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Here's another one. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ here at Colossae. How about this? Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Both First and Second Thessalonians open that way. And then, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon. So even this personal letter to Philemon, Timothy's included in on that. Six different letters. And Paul says here, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So uh, when we think back of some of these people in church history, I mean, and he sent him on some very hard errands and gave him some very difficult. I mean, he's there at Ephesus, left there, and he's supposed to set everything in order and so on. Um it's an interesting, there's a lot of history uh, tied up in this one little uh, half of verse. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. But at any rate, we come then to this last section, uh, which is the end of a long journey through Romans. 
verses 25 to 27, uh, closing doxology. So let's read this. Now to Him who is able to establish you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the Scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. What a wonderful conclusion to a wonderful letter. And uh, I want us to look at the basic thought first of all. He starts out, verse 25, now to him. And he picks it up again in verse 27. To the only wise God, be glory forever. Now to Him, to the only wise God, be glory forever. When you think back of all the glorious things that Paul has said in Romans, uh, this is such a fitting conclusion uh, to give glory to God. Um, Go back to Romans 1 and the insight that God has given us in Romans concerning the state of the world. We talked about that a lot. Uh, There's... No way of understanding things around us. We get used to this. How the, the insight we have into the condition of the world, that the world is not normal. And what Ryan shared this morning, that there's sin. Sin has entered in. And um, we forget that other, other, other philosophies, other religions are trying to come at the world and look at this and look at the headlines in the paper and try to make sense out of it as being normal. And the Bible alone gives us the, the, the solution that things are not now the way God first made them. That man has sinned, and that the problem in the world is a result of sin. And uh, it goes on, um, um, showing the condemnation of Jew and Gentile. And uh, Paul talking about uh, the state of the world and the state that the world's in through sin and turning away from God. Man's problem doesn't have to do with how small he is. It has to do with how bad he is. Um, I don't remember if I shared this or not back when we were in Romans 1-3, to but uh, Einstein was talking once about how bad the state of the world was and of course, he was of a Jewish background, and uh, Hitler was killing millions of Jews. And he said, well, after all, we're just a small planet. But you see, um, sin doesn't have to do with size. It has to do with, with man's power to do evil. The stars are a lot bigger than we are, but the stars don't know right and wrong, and they don't choose evil. And the fact that we're a small planet doesn't change at all the fact that we're in the mess we're in through sin. And then Paul goes on, you know, the, the, the condemnation of all men, the fact that uh, we're all uh, under the wrath of God and this dilemma of how can a righteous God ever 
justify condemned criminals and how is this ever going to take place and Christ died to pay for our sins as we heard from Ryan this morning and um, then not only what Christ has done for us but what he's done in us setting us free breaking our slavery to sin when you think of the fact that he'll never leave us nor forsake us uh, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and you go on and think of the wisdom of God and His plan related to both Jew and Gentile, saving them both in Christ. And uh, clear on over as you go through these remaining chapters uh, that the only debt we owe is not to the flesh, but to the debt of love. Uh, what else can you say but to God be the glory, great things He has done. <laughs> and uh, that's the way He ends this this whole letter. And of course, it's through... Jesus Christ, and he's emphasized that all the way through here. To God be the glory, to him, to the only wise God be the glory through Jesus Christ. So he concludes the whole of Romans by giving praise to God. But there are some things he says here about the only wise God that we need to make note of. And I want to break it down into four parts. First of all, God, he says, is the one who is able to establish us according to Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing. God is able to establish us. God's able to establish us. Uh, What a comfort this is. You may be ever so weak this morning, but God is able to establish you. If you're real, if you have anything real, Jesus said, Blessed is the one who has. To him more shall be given, and he shall have an abundance. Isn't that amazing? If you have the slightest little bit of anything real, what a blessed condition you're in because you're going to get more. And in the end, you'll end up having an abundance beyond imagination. The righteous, Jesus said, will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. And so, um, God is able to establish us. Uh, Listen to these verses. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ, Our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now to Him who is able. And here again, and this is in Romans, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And in Hebrews 7, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. What Ryan was sharing this morning about people have all these thoughts of not coming to Christ, and one of the big thoughts is, I won't, I'll never make it. I know I'm not, I'm not going to make it if I, if I come to Christ. And he says here that if you come to Christ, if you truly come to Him, be you ever so weak, He's able to establish and make you stand. Stand he will, for the Lord is able 
to make him stand. Here's another one. The Lord is faithful and he will strengthen. This is the same word establish in the Greek. He will establish and protect you from the evil one. That's 2 Thessalonians 3. And then 1 Peter 5. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So, first thing Paul does when he's ending off the letter and he's just getting ready to leave them with this letter, he says he's able to establish you. And he's willing to establish you. It wouldn't be much comfort if he just said, well, God's able, yeah, but he doesn't care whether you fall away or not. That's not what he's saying. He's able and he will. But how does God establish us? Well, by, by what means does He do it? Well, He says, Now to Him who is able to establish you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Beloved, there is strength and encouragement and establishing that comes just through reading and hearing the Bible. And you know, you don't think about it. Sometimes, you know, you eat food usually about every day. But uh, there may be meals that are not all that memorable, you know. But you got sustenance from it and it kept you from dying. And that's true in terms of the Word. You can, If you spend time in the Word, you're reading the Word. You, you may not have some glorious time every day, but you're, you're, t- you're being established and built up and strengthened through the Word. Uh, Paul himself says this, doesn't he? In Acts 20, he says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Uh, Similar burden. I think you see the same thing here. He was saying that to those Ephesians. I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up. So he's taking leave of them and he doesn't think he's going to see him again and he says, I'm just handing you over to God and to His to the Word. It's amazing. And so the first thing to ask yourself or to ask somebody else if they're languishing spiritually and they're not doing well and they're sick and weak is how much time are you spending in the Bible? How much are you lists Are you sitting under the preaching of the Word? I mean, just to even uh, hear the Bible opened up or read the Bible, God uses that to strengthen and build and build us up. Uh, what is the greatest commandment? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's the very next verse? Listen to it. And these words... See, he says, you shall love the Lord your God and so on. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And talk of them when you sit down in your house. And when you walk by the way. And when you lie down. And when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontals on your forehead. 
and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So that why? Because it's able to build you up and be established and establish you. So we're built up through the gospel, he says, and the preaching of Christ. Notice that too. It's not studying the tenth toe on Daniel's image that builds you up. It's the preaching of Christ. Thinking about uh, about what He's done. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write on my heart every word. Tell me the story. I mean, this morning, we heard just the basic Gospel message. Oh, ho-hum. I don't want to hear that anymore. No. <laughs> it's wonderful. And it builds you up. And Paul says it's able to give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. So... All right, so that's the first thing. He says, now to him who's able to establish you. Wonderful thought. And he does it through the preaching of Christ and the gospel. Secondly, though, the preaching of the gospel is according to the revelation of the mystery, which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested. Now, what's that mean? Well, we spent quite a bit of time on this. Uh, in the past, and we won't go over much today. But you remember what was said concerning the Lord Jesus in, in the early chapters of Matthew. When he spe- He's speaking in parables, and the verse is quoted, I will open my mouth in parables. This is the Messiah speaking long before. I'll open my mouth in parables. I'll utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. You want to hear some things, some words that had never been spoken in all of human history? All you got to do is just read the Gospels. Nobody had ever imagined such things. And it, it, isn't, it, isn't it wonderful? He, Jesus said king, many kings and righteous men and prophets desired to hear the things that you hear and they didn't get to. So we are sitting here, we've got this treasure of mysteries that have been hidden from the foundation of the world that have been revealed in the words and teachings of Jesus. But not only that, when Paul talks about the gospel mystery that's been revealed, he's usually referring to God's plan to make the Gentiles fellow heirs uh, of Christ along with the Jews. Now, let me just give you one passage. And actually, this isn't the whole passage, but this gives you a feel. Uh, this is Ephesians 3, 4-10. Paul says, When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. So there it is, same thought. Not made manifest, now revealed. To be specific, well, what is this mystery? To be specific that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That was unthinkable to a Jew, that these dog, Gentile dogs are going to be brought in like this. He says, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which has been, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles 
the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God, this is God only wise, might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul was just overwhelmed by how this this light that dawned when Christ came that the gospel actually went out to the Gentiles, that there's a church in Corinth and there's a church in Rome. Those were unthinkable things. And he never got over it and he was overwhelmed by this this uh, revelation that had come um, with the coming of the Messiah. <clears throat> so, uh, next phrase. This is amazingly packed. Uh, that it, this is one of those impossible sentences that isn't really a sentence. And he leaves things hanging and what have you. But he says... Uh, According to the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but is now manifested. And then he says this, Paul's gospel was made known, quote, by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God. Now, what's that mean? Well, everything that Paul preached, he proved from the Old Testament. And uh, Jews would come along with the idea, well, that's an innovation, that's something new you've come up with, it's heretical, and he would prove that, no, this was taught in the Old Testament. That's the way he began Romans. He said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, what? Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. So this gospel is something... That was already promised in the prophets. Same thing he says here. Again in 3.21, he says, Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So there wasn't something new. Abraham was justified by faith, by imputed righteousness. He goes into that in chapter 4. So he says all this is according to Scripture. Now, here's a question. He says that this salvation was hidden from the foundation of the world, and yet it was all talked about in the Bible, in the Old Testament. Now, how does that fit together? That's the question. Uh, In Romans 15, he quoted one verse after another to prove that the Old Testament had talked about the coming in of the Gentiles. You remember that? Let me me read them to you. Um, He says... Um, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to thee among the Gentiles. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, there shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall hope. That doesn't sound very hidden, does it? How does that work? He's quoting all that, and he says a little later in chapter 15, as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. And another prophecy about the Gentiles being saved. So how could he say that this was hidden from the foundation of the world? Well, um, 
The answer is that it's all right there in the Old Testament, but it could only be clearly seen and understood by standing in the light of the New Testament and looking back to the Old. And that is so simple, but it's so important. Because what happens in our day is people and theologians in particular start in the Old Testament and try to understand and pull all that into the New and conform the New Testament to the Old. And the whole thing that he's saying here is that this is hidden. If you start back there, this is hidden. If you start up here with the light of the new, it becomes clear. So you want to understand about the temple? Read the New Testament. And it tells you who the true temple is and what the temple stood for. And the fact that we are the temple of the living God. You see, you want to understand the sacrifices? Read the New Testament. You want to understand uh, the manna? What's the manna? Well, I'm the true bread that came down out of heaven. You see? And so you want to understand the Sabbath day? Read the New Testament. And you look back and you understand. So, such an important thing. Everything that Paul and the other disciples taught is according to the Old Testament, but it's hidden there, awaiting the light of the world to come and shine back on everything. And, you know, if you just read the verse, out of Egypt I've called my son, in the context it's talking about Israel. But Matthew, looking back, says, look, Israel as a whole was reenacting something that happened in the life of the Messiah. Okay? So, number four, Paul says that his gospel was according to the commandment of the eternal God, made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. You know, the preaching of the gospel to all nations is not something that men came up with. It's not something that uh, some particular church came up with. It's something that God came up with. It's the commandment of the eternal God. You think even of the so-called Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. So this is the commandment of the eternal God. And notice though that Paul puts this in the past tense. He says this gospel was preached according to the commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations. So it already had happened. What's he saying? Well, he's not saying that somebody came over and preached to the American Indians. But he's saying the gospel went far and wide. As soon as, I mean, from the day of Pentecost on, the gospel had spread all over everywhere. It exploded. It had gone out into the world, in other words. It had been proclaimed among the nations and published far and wide. And he says this in Colossians 1 also. He says, The gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. And a little later in Colossians 1, The gospel that you have heard which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So the point is, is that the gospel was published far and wide in Paul's day. And it's our responsibility to publish it far and wide in our day. 
And we have an even greater knowledge of what's involved in that and a greater ability through various means. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that it took three months or six months to get a letter back from the mission field. So we've got opportunities like never before to reach out. What's the result of the preaching of the gospel? Well, he says the obedience of faith. For obedience of faith. What's that? Well, men bowing the knee to Christ, trusting Him as their Savior and following Him as their Lord. Now, when you just look through this, it's amazing how much this doxology echoes things that Paul has already said in Romans. In the opening verses, he talks about um, according to the uh, uh, God had promised beforehand through His prophets in the Holy Scriptures the the, uh, obedience of faith among all the nations. This is Romans 1.5. We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. There it is. Among all the Gentiles for His name's sake. 1.11. Uh, Paul wants to come to them that they might be established. Well, he says now he ends off saying, now to him who is able to establish you. 11.25, he talks about the mystery of the partial hardening of the Jews in order that the Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles might come in. 11.33, he talks about the depth of the riches of the wisdom of God. And here he talks about the only wise God. So he said all these things before. But he just pulls them all together here at the end. And he just gives glory to God. He says, how I thank God for what He's done in Christ, that He's able to build you up and keep you through this Gospel. And this Gospel is the one that was promised long ages ago, but it's been hidden. Now it's made clear and it's gone out, spread out to all the world, all over the place. And all these things together bring one great outpouring of praise to the only wise God through Jesus Christ. Be the glory forever. So really the doxology is kind of a summary of uh, things that he said already. But it's a closing note from the Apostle Paul. And you know, you remember when we went over this, he was wanting to go to Rome um, right after this, he left Corinth and ended up traveling over to Jerusalem, delivered that gift. Timothy was one that went along and uh, delivered that gift. And he did make it to Rome, but he made it to Rome in chains three years later. Um, apparently, he was released after that first time, that first imprisonment, and then ended up back there again finally and died there. Um, a lot of different factors went together to give this epistle of Paul to the Romans. Aren't you thankful? I mean, this was a church that he didn't found himself. He wasn't the one that started the church. And because of that, I think that's why really we have such a comprehensive, um, logical laying out of the gospel because he's just summarizing everything to a church that he'd never been to before. 
And uh, what would it have been like? I mean, how thankful we can be that he wasn't... Like when he writes the Corinthians, he's dealing with problems. And a lot of the things that we learn in the Bible and the New Testament, we learn because they were dealing with problems. We wouldn't even have known about it otherwise, but they were dealing with problems. But overall, in Romans, he's not dealing with problems. He's just laid out the glory of everything. And he does say it's been a lot of time on Jew and Gentile because there was that problem there in some measure. And so he's exhorting them. But he faced that everywhere. So he's exhorting them to receive one another in the Lord. Well, 